Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra, in on-trend hues like green and citron and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archives Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Do you remember when you got your first smartphone or maybe your first Polaroid instant camera? I think I just dated myself. Everyone went photo crazy. In the 15th century, it was oil paint that was the new hot tech. Unlike tempera paints before it, oil paints offered artists a wider array of technical applications. And it was just so much more flexible. It was revolutionary to many artists. And everyone wanted a portrait, or maybe a painting depicting a story from classical mythology as its subject, or among the more affluent crowd, maybe a devotional work for a chapel they were sponsoring, a work such as the now-famous Ghent Altarpiece, which we'll be talking about in this episode, a piece that, in spite of its adventurous life, is still with us today. Welcome to Criminalia, I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. The search for the stolen Ghent altarpiece near the end of the Second World War is a major point of the 2014 film The Monuments Men. And yes, we are going to touch on that event later, but that's not the only time this piece has been stolen and recovered, or vandalized. In fact, part of it remains missing today, and that's going to be more of our focus. The Ghent altarpiece, also known as Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, was commissioned by Jos Vade, a wealthy merchant who is recorded as either alderman or deputy burgomaster of Ghent, Belgium, and his wife, Lisbeth Borlut, for the Vade Chapel in the Church of St. John the Baptist. Today, this is St. Bavo Cathedral in Ghent. The work was probably commissioned in the mid-1420s. We're not sure about that, but what we do know is that it was completed and ready for viewing in 1432. It is considered the most famous Flemish painting from the Renaissance period, and as we're about to get into, it's kind of a miracle that it has made it this far through history. During the time of the Renaissance, so we're talking 14th century into 17th century-ish, 
A large altarpiece such as this one had a unique status as a commission. These were works typically produced by artists with a capital A. A commissioned altarpiece would, when installed, be a, if not the, focal point inside a chapel. The Ghent altarpiece is a polyptic type, which means it has multiple panels that are designed to be opened and closed by folding hinged side panels. So when it's open, the altarpiece measures roughly 11 and a half by 15 feet, or that's three and a half by four and a half meters. And with its shutters closed, it measures about 11 and a half by seven and a half feet, or three and a half by two meters. So what we're talking about here is big. This is a large piece of artwork. Consider a standard garage door in a standard suburb in the United States is seven or maybe eight feet high to compare. So the work is tall, tall enough to include life-size nudes. The piece is composed of 12 framed oak panels, eight of which are painted on both sides using oil paints to visually tell Christian biblical stories. The overarching theme here centers around the redemption of humanity. The lower center panel of this piece is by far the largest of the panels. And it's the panel depicting the story that gives the altarpiece its name. It shows a crowd worshiping a lamb, which of course symbolizes Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice in the crucifixion story. Above the lamb is a dove symbolizing the Holy Spirit. Among all the panels, there are depictions of Christ, the Virgin Mary, Adam and Eve, saints, angels, prophets, a curiously humanoid sheep, which has made art history students chuckle throughout the years. There are some other biblical figures as well, and they include stories like the Annunciation to the Virgin Mary, as well as the Passion of Christ. Yos and his wife appear on the back panels of the piece. On the far left bottom panel, you'll find the kneeling figure of Yos, and the far right has the kneeling figure of Lisbeth. So we've got a work of art and the couple who commissioned it. So now let's talk about a guy named Jan van Eyck, the artist who painted it. Jan van Eyck is the most famous member of a family of painters from the town of Messac in the Diocese of Liège in the Holy Roman Empire. This area is now Belgium. He was born in 1390, give or take a year or two here, it's a little fuzzy along that timeline, and had three siblings, one sister, Margareta, and two brothers, Hubert and Lambert, as an adult, Jan primarily lived and worked in the city of Bruges, and is in Bruges where he painted what many consider his greatest achievement, this Ghent altarpiece. Some artists inspire you, said the New York Times of a Jan van Eyck retrospective in Ghent in 2020. Van Eyck, they continued, leaves you stupefied. Jan painted religious commissions and portraits of Burgundian courtiers, nobles, churchmen, and merchants. In October of 1422, Jan cannot really hide from the historical record because at that point he was appointed valet de chambre et peintre, the court painter of John of Bavaria, a count of Hainaut Holland, and that was a position he held until the count's death in 1425. He then took a prestigious appointment with Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, also as court painter. Some historians believe that some of his frequent travels for the Burgundian court were actually diplomatic missions. That would have been uncommon for a court painter to do. Other historians believe that those so-called diplomatic missions, yeah, that should have air quotes, and instead <laughs> they theorize that he likely was traveling as a spy for the Duke. But spying or no spying, the travel that he did broadened his horizons, and in turn, what he saw on those travels often became content in his art. Jan van Eyck was gifted with oil paints and experimented with new textures, light, and spatial effects of nature. He filled his paintings with religious symbols and often disguised them as everyday objects such as the sun. The realism of his pieces was admired by Italian humanist Syriacus d'Ancona, who observed that van Eyck's art seemed to have been produced, quote, not by the artifice of human hands, but by all bearing nature herself. Modern-day American art historian, novelist, and founder of the Association for Research into Crimes Against Art, Noah Charney, writes in his book, Stealing the Mystic Lamb, quote, Until the altarpiece was painted, only portrait miniatures and illuminated manuscripts contained such detail. 
Nothing like this intricacy had ever been seen before on such a grand scale by artists or admirers. Painter and printmaker Albrecht Dürer praised Jan regarding the altarpiece during a visit to Ghent, describing the work as, quote, a stupendous piece of religious art. And scooching a little bit up the historical timeline to 1562, Flemish and Netherlandish historian Marcus van Wernwijk referred to Jan as the creator of a Netherlandish Renaissance masterpiece. But there's actually a semi-secret about the Ghent altarpiece. It wasn't painted by Jan van Eyck. Well, it was and it wasn't. <laughs> uh, it is a work that seems to have been started by Hubert van Eyck and completed after his death by his younger brother Jan. This is a really big deal, if you can imagine, in the art world. Up until just a few years ago, the idea that Hubert was a contributing artist on the piece was questionable. American medieval art historian Herbert Kessler has said about Hubert, quote, whether this Hubert Van Eyck was related to Jan and why in the 16th century he was credited with the major share of the Ghent altarpiece are questions that remain unanswered. But information today is changing rapidly and recently, too. Hubert died in 1426, so well before the altarpiece was completed. And though there are no other works of art attributed to him, at least not yet, when a restoration and analysis of the altarpiece began in 2012, scholars identified an elaborate underlying painting that they now attribute to the elder Van Eyck. It's believed that Hubert painted the sky, a hilly landscape, some simple cities on the horizon, and a meadow. Jan's hand, though, is recognizable. He, it's clear, painted over that landscape and added a few recognizable motifs to those cities on the horizon, including the Tower of Utrecht Cathedral and the Church of Our Lady in Bruges. Some of the figures in the work appear to have been painted by Hubert and left untouched by Jan, while others are unmistakably done by Jan's hand. In the center of the altarpiece, Hubert had painted a natural spring, which Jan transformed into the Fountain of Life says Greet Steyart, restorer and art historian at the Royal Institute for Cultural Heritage in Brussels, quote, We actually think that Hubert made the underdrawing, had already started working on it in paint, but that he had to stop work at a certain point. Jan then finished it off. Hubert's role in the painting has always been and continues to be something of a mystery. In 1823, which puts us roughly 400 years after the piece was created, a Latin quatrain was found under overpaint on the frame of the piece, stating, quote, The painter Hubert van Eyck, a greater man was never found, started this work. His brother Jan, second in art, completed this arduous task at the request of Jas Vey. He invites you on the 6th of May with this first behold what was done. This message from the Van Eyck brothers is inscribed in Latin on the lower frames of their altarpiece and later verified by the Royal Institute as original. So really, we are on the historical timeline, kind of smack in the middle of this Hubert controversy. Just recently, in, in 2020, restorers again confirmed that the quatrain inscription is original to the work. According to the Royal Institute, this research, quote, brings clarity to an old enigma and opens the door to a new chapter in the study of the Flemish primitives, the search for other paintings by Hubert van Eyck. When the altarpiece was unveiled on May 6, 1432, the Bishop of Ghent, Lode van Eyck, was quoted as saying, quote, religious and Christian heritage is unlocked here in a unique way. This is not only important for the sake of the past, but even more so for today and tomorrow. He continued, quote, It confronts us with humans' eternal quest for mystery. I am convinced that many people will find personal resonance here. We're going to take a break right now for a word from our sponsor, and when we return, we will talk about how art historians argue that the altarpiece is the first great oil painting. And we'll also talk about how many brushes it's had with danger. Can I rant for a sec? Please. 
pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions. And I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash criminalia. That's simplysafe, S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older <laughs> in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Criminalia. It was in the mid-16th century when life for the altarpiece became fraught with danger. And that piece has never been the same, literally and figuratively, ever since. Napoleon once stole several of its panels. The Nazis? They took the whole thing. The Ghent altarpiece has been the victim of more than a dozen crimes since its installation, as well as several thefts. It's, quote, 
arguably the single most important painting ever made. It's the first great oil painting. It influenced oil paintings for centuries to come. That's a quote from art historian Noah Charney, who continues saying, it's the first great panel painting of the Renaissance, a forerunner to artistic realism. The monumentality of it and the complexity of it fascinated people from the moment it was painted. During the first century of its existence, things were pretty quiet for the altarpiece. It wasn't first threatened with acts of destruction until the 16th century, when the Protestant Reformation swept through Europe and any ornate art in churches was regarded as superfluous and therefore destroyed. In 1566, the work was dismantled into its component panels and stored in the church's tower to protect it from rioters who were breaking into churches to smash art and objects that they considered to be an example of Catholic excess and idolatry. For the next 18 years, it's reported that the piece was protected in a fortified room in the town hall in Ghent. And now jumping ahead on the vandalism and theft timeline to 1781, Emperor Joseph II of the Holy Roman Empire, which at that time encompassed Belgium, demanded censure of the panels depicting naked Adam and Eve in the story of the Garden of Eden. The panels were replaced with replicas that had one addition. They depicted the pair wearing bearskins. By the time the piece ended up in Paris after the French Revolution, the bearskins were gone, though. Paris? You might be asking, when did we go to Paris? French soldiers stole four of the panels from the cathedral and had transported them by horse-drawn cart to exhibit at Napoleon's new museum in Paris, the Louvre. The panels were not returned to Ghent until 1815, when Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo by the Duke of Wellington, and there's a name we've mentioned on this show in a few different seasons, who returned the piece to St. Babo's Cathedral. The next problem wasn't a theft, and it wasn't vandalism. It was the clergy. Shortly after the return of the altarpiece, a local vicar pawned six of the painting's wing panels, those are those side panels we talked about earlier, to a local art dealer named Lambert Neuenhuis for 3,000 guilders. They were eventually returned following public outrage in Ghent, but the legend of the altarpiece just keeps rolling. In 1822, fire broke out in the cathedral, and the piece narrowly escaped. Some tales of the legend of the altarpiece suggest that during the 19th century, some panels also legally found their way into the hands of the King of Prussia, Frederick William III, and, likely illegally obtained, some panels were also in the possession of the Kaiser Friedrich Museum in Berlin. There are also some more tenuous tales about this piece, such as this one from 1861, where it suggested the state of Belgium convinced the church administration of St. Babo's Cathedral to sell them the original panels featuring the naked Adam and Eve for 50,000 Belgian francs, with the intent that the panels were to be exhibited at the National Museum in Brussels. Sure, maybe. Really where things get hairy for this piece it, it doesn't come down to which museum the work is being exhibited in or when. The hairiness of this happens when the world goes to war. When Germany invaded Belgium in 1914 during the First World War, the Belgian government feared the confiscation of the Ghent altarpiece. Canon Gabriel Vandengein of St. Bavos Cathedral was assigned to oversee the protection of this important artwork. With no time to get the altarpiece out of the country, the story goes that the canon came up with a quick solution. He requested two Belgian ministers draw up a false letter stating that the altarpiece was to be transported to England for safekeeping during the war. And if the Germans came to collect it, they would be given that letter. And then Vandegein arranged for the secret transportation of the work in wooden crates to two Gentish homes where, Legend says the panels were bricked into walls and hidden under floorboards for their safety. Vandegein's trick worked, but many locals feared reprisal by the Germans if they ever discovered the Ghent altarpiece was missing. After the war in 1919, Article 247 of the Treaty of Versailles between Germany and the Allied powers stated, quote, Germany undertakes to deliver to Belgium, through the Reparations Commission, within six months of the coming into force of the present treaty, 
in order to enable Belgium to reconstitute two great artistic works. And the first named work was the Panels of the Mystic Lamb. All panels that had been in Germany were returned to Ghent in 1923, and some reports suggest there'd been damage, that the side panels from the altarpiece that had been exhibited in Berlin had been cut in half, vertically, in an effort to exhibit both sides of the pieces at the same time. The panels were delivered to Ghent on a train decorated with the Belgian flag, and the procession has been described as a wounded war hero returning home. The piece was met by large crowds in every city where the train passed through. Church bells chimed and the national anthem of Belgium played, and for a moment, the Ghent altarpiece was intact. Just a moment, though, because the altarpiece's biggest adventure happened on the morning of April 11, 1934. That morning, a church steward named Oscar von Buchot began preparing for morning service. But when he arrived, he was surprised to find that one parishioner had already made her way inside the church, which led him to wonder, why had the church not been locked? And that is when he realized that something bigger was afoot. The steward ran off to alert Canon Vandegein, who then in turn alerted the police, as one does. Church authorities panicked and rushed into the cathedral sacristy, where the church's jewels and articles of worship were kept, and it seemed everything was in place. But upon closer look, they realized that thieves had stolen two panels of the Ghent altarpiece. One, a depiction of St. John the Baptist, and another depicting an equestrian scene known as the Just Judges. Some historians report that there was a note written in French stating, quote, taken from Germany by the Treaty of Versailles, and that had been left on the frame. Ghent Police Commissioner Antoine Leisterbers came to the scene for the initial investigation, but frankly, that investigation was a joke. The police didn't clear the gathering crowd out of the chapel. They didn't seal off the crime scene. In fact, they didn't try to photograph the crime scene or look for fingerprints or footprints or any kind of clues. There had been another theft earlier that same night at a cheese shop across the street, and the commissioner had made that investigation their priority. Gouda is my priority. <laughs> Listen, I understand. I, I was like, yeah, no, yeah, I get it. Cheese, cheese. is important. <laughs> it's right across the street. He can watch both. <laughs> cheese is very important. <laughs> 19 days after this theft, the Bishop of Ghent, Henri Joseph Copetier, received the first of 13 ransom notes, all signed with the letters D-U-A. The first, delivered in a green envelope, demanded 1 million Belgian francs. The note read, quote, It is our privilege to inform you that we possess the two paintings by Van Eyck, which were stolen from the cathedral of your city. We feel that it is better not to explain to you by what dramatic events we now possess these pearls. It happened in so incoherent a manner that the current location of the two pieces is known only to one of us. This fact is the only thing that should concern you because of its terrifying implications. The ransom request was cash with no traceable serial numbers wrapped in brown paper and sealed with the insignia of the diocese. We understand, the note read, quote, that the demanded amount is high, but a million can be regained, whereas a Van Eyck can never be painted again. If the church refused to pay the ransom, the thieves promised to destroy those panels. If he agreed with the deal, the bishop was asked to publish an ad in the classified section of the local newspaper, Le Dernier Heure, that means the latest hour, stating the following, quote, D-U-A. In agreement with the authorities, we accept your propositions totally. Crown prosecutor, that's a state prosecutor, Franz Dehim, stepped in to lead the ransom negotiations, and his stance was, uh, he did not plan on giving the thieves a dime. The Belgian government felt the same. Dehim advised the bishop to place a classified ad, telling the ransomers instead that their proposition was, quote, exaggerated. There was some back and forth on this, and we're not sure what was said until May 29th, when the bishop received a third note from the ransomers stating, quote, We have read your answer in the paper of May 25th, and take full note of your obligations. Observe them conscientiously, and we will preserve ours. 
As a show of good faith, they had included a receipt for luggage storage in the Brussels North Station. At the station, when authorities claimed that receipt, the storage clerk handed over a large, flat package wrapped in black wax paper, which turned out to be the panel of St. John the Baptist. No way, right? I mean, it actually, they came through on that. (laughs) The clerk recalled the person who had delivered the package was a man about 50 years old who had a pointed beard. Police, though, remained baffled about the identity of the thieves, as well as the location of the remaining missing painting. The ransom story going forward from here kind of varies a little bit depending on who tells it. But it generally goes like this. An anonymous man sat inside the confessional booth at the Church of St. Laurentius in Antwerp, Belgium, and confessed to nothing whatsoever. The man was there to talk to the priest, Father Henri Melepasse, and ask him a favor. A prominent Belgian family, he said, needed special letters delivered in secret. And would it be possible for the church to help with the delivery? The priest agreed to help, and though he may not have realized it, he had just agreed to be the person to hand over the ransom money for the just judges panel. On June 1st, another letter arrived at the bishop's residence explaining how the priest would be part of the ransom plan. Quote, We ask you to personally hand over the package that contains our commission to Father Melepas, San Laurentius Church, Antwerp. You could let him know that it concerns a restitution of papers and letters involving the honor of one of the most dignified families. Inside this letter was a vertically torn page from a newspaper that was to be used as a sort of key for identification and for the transaction. Dahim went along with this ransom plan, despite the fact that earlier we said he didn't want anything to do with it. (laughs) He wrapped money in brown paper and stamped it with the seal following the demands. He also gave Father Melepas the vertical strip of newspaper, and the priest did the deed. On June 14th, a taxi driver drove up to the rectory, stating he was there to pick up a parcel. The men verified each other with the torn newspaper, and the ransom money was given to the driver, who then drove away. But the package that Dahim had prepared didn't actually contain the requested amount of one million Belgian francs. The priest unknowingly delivered only 25,000 Belgian francs, and that's when the bishop began receiving a series of indignant letters from an incensed ransomer who was furious about the fact that the promised one million Belgian francs had not been received. Of the negotiations, they wrote, quote, It is incomprehensible. We risked our lives to come into possession of these two jewels, and we keep thinking that what we ask is not excessive or impossible to realize. So basically, they were angry that they went through all the trouble to steal art. And for what? Nothing? They're getting nothing? (laughs) We've seen the word difficult used to describe communication between the parties after this happened. The final note from the perpetrators arrived on October 1st. I mean, I stole your stuff. I took a lot of risk. You really owe me. You really should pay me. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a stance. It was, I think so. But then, after six weeks of silence, something unexpected happened. On November 25th, 1934, 57-year-old Arsène Godertier a stout stockbroker with a curly waxed mustache, collapsed shortly after giving a speech at a meeting of the local chapter of the Catholic political party in Dendermonde, Belgium. Arsène was the owner of a small bank office in Veteran and was generally considered to be a respectable and well-heeled man. But on his deathbed, he summoned Georges de Vos, his lawyer, and whispered to him, quote, I alone know where the mystic lamb is. The information is in the drawer on the right of my writing table in an envelope marked Mutualité. His lawyer followed instructions. He drove to Arsène's home. It was only about eight miles outside of Ghent, and inside he headed toward the study. At the desk, he picked up a folder labeled Mutualité, and within he found copies of the 13 ransom notes that had been sent to Bishop Copiatère. There was also a final unsent note containing a semi-clue about the stolen panel's whereabouts, stating, quote, I am the only one in this world who knows the places where the just judges rest. It rests in a place where neither I nor anybody else 
can take it away without arousing the attention of the public. I mean, that sure narrows things down. A whole bunch. Yeah. It's somewhere (laughs) public. (laughs) DeVos failed to alert authorities about Arsene's deathbed confession for a month. Instead, he met with four legal colleagues, a district attorney, two court of appeals presidents, and Franz Dahim, the crown prosecutor who you'll recognize from earlier in the ransom negotiations, to begin their own investigation. Their reason for excluding authorities remains a mystery, but ultimately, the lot of lawyers didn't turn up much at all. Arsene had a fake passport under the name Van Damme. And they also found the typewriter assumed to have been used to type the ransom notes. Instead of securing the typewriter as evidence, the men instead used it to write their reports. They found that, days after the initial heist, Arsène had opened a new bank account and deposited 10,000 Belgian francs. They also discovered a key, which they eventually figured out unlocked the roof loft of St. Bavo's Cathedral. Police neglected to interview DeVos. They also failed to report that confession to the diocese for another four months. Authorities also failed to interview a woman who told local newspapers that she had seen lights flickering inside the chapel on the night of the theft. There is so much they did not do. They never examined the ransom letters. They never bothered to talk to the men who were with Arsene the day he died. Authorities did, however, eventually get around to interviewing Arsene's wife, and she admitted that her husband had made some strange comments about the Ghent altarpiece after the panel heist had happened, sharing that he once told her, quote, If I had to go looking for the panel, I would look on the outside of St. Bavo. I wouldn't look so far. If they'd let me search for it, I'd stay in the vicinity of the cathedral. On another occasion, she stated that she had heard him say something about the painting being moved, but not stolen. Decades later, another investigator also discovered that Arsene had made a similar statement to a fellow stockbroker, saying that, quote, if you move something, it is not stolen. Well, Arsene did become the prime suspect in the case, at least for the local police, but it took a super long time for that to happen, and no one could figure out his motive. And remember, he had since passed away, too. It's art historian Charney who suggests a theory that a group of wealthy Catholic investors, with the help of local police and church authorities, perhaps stole the paintings in hopes that Belgium's government would pay ransom for them. The theory continues, that may be why Arsene never spoke of the just judge's panel as being stolen. Maybe it wasn't. It was safe to him among his fellow churchgoers. As a patron of the Catholic political party, he would have had special access to people of rank and influence within the church. In fact, he'd attended the same school as Bishop Copiatere as kids. Many, though, disagree that the wealthy and devout stockbroker would have resorted to extortion. He was involved with his local church and had co-founded a Christian health service. He was a known philanthropist who helped run two Catholic charities. His past as a sexton left him with good relations with the Diocese of Ghent. And when it came to the ransom, some experts wonder why he'd ask for ransom when he died with three million Belgian francs in the bank. For decades, theories and speculations about the possible thief and the possible hiding place of the Just Judge's painting have regularly emerged, but still, today, investigators are empty-handed. But there is a man. Carol Mortier was chief of the Ghent police from 1974 to 1991, and he estimates he's been contacted about more than 350 possible locations for where to find the judge's panel. None of those hundreds of tips have been correct. St. Bavo's Cathedral has been searched at least six times since the early 1940s, but nothing has turned up. Mortier once supervised a partial x-ray of the cathedral to the depth of roughly 33 feet or 10 meters, but also found nothing. And in 1995, an amateur detective exhumed, <clears throat> uh, he illegally dug up Arsene's skull and questioned it during a seance. You won't be surprised that he got no new information there either. 
Though he's no longer an active officer, Mortier continues to hunt for that lost panel. As his investigation plays out, he has suggested Arsène could not have acted alone. First, it turns out he had a vision problem that made it difficult for him to see in the dark, and he probably would not have been capable of carrying out an art heist in a cathedral in the middle of the night. Mortier also suggested that the judge's panel, taken from the altarpiece's framework, was so high off the ground that thieves would have needed a ladder to reach it, and at least two people to remove it. He concluded that one of the four church custodians was likely involved, even if it was only just to provide a ladder. But Mortier has met with a lot of obstacles during his investigation. For instance, the church. Uh, The church granted him access to 600 pages of archival material relating to the altarpiece, but those pages don't contain any content for the years between 1934 and 1945 the exact period of time Mortier and all of us want to know more about. That kind of sounds a little like a conspiracy, but really, it also seems like much of this heist investigation was just really sloppily conducted. Or maybe it was a conspiracy. Who are we to say? We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and when we're back, we will talk about how the altarpiece survived the Second World War. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just-arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy Push-Up Bra from the Very Sexy Collection, in on-trend hues like Black Shine, Green, and Citron. For a glam statement, pair them with your favorite jeans and bring the heat. Because life is better in a bikini. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. For endless out-of-office options, mix and match with Victoria's Secret's wide range of bikini tops and bottoms that offer you every type of coverage, from full to cheeky to minimal. And now, in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition Bombshell Escape fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk more about that Just Judges panel. But first, let's talk about how the thief from the cheese shop spilled the beans on the perpetrators. 
or at least tried to. There are a handful of colorful theories surrounding the loss of the Just Judges panel. Some point to police collusion. Some say the painting is buried in the tomb of Albert I near Brussels. Some say there's a secret code hidden in the ransom notes. I have been confronted with the wildest theories, Mortier once said. Over decades, he's collected so much information on the Just Judges heist that it took up a reported 26 feet of filing space. It's bigger than the piece itself. He <laughs> he is also responsible for discovering archived files on Cesar Ericus, the perpetrator stealing cheese the night of the Van Eyck theft. Cesar had originally recognized both of the men he'd seen at the cathedral that night. The cheese shop he robbed, remember, may have just been as close as across the street. He saw a large man in an overcoat pacing by the side of a large black sedan. He saw a second man emerge from the church with a plank tucked under his arm. But the police didn't look into his statement. In 1947, Cesar revealed at least one of their identities during his plea bargain, a man named Pilador Prim, known local smuggler. Sure, there's evidence the second person may have been Godertier. His involvement in the story remains really interesting, and yet it's still an open case. And Ericus could have just been naming names to shorten his own sentence. We don't know. Regardless, though, the police never wrote a second name down in their report and never followed up on the Prem lead. During the Second World War, the piece was once again in high danger of looting. Joseph Goebbels, the Minister of Propaganda for the Nazi government of the Third Reich, assigned Heinrich Kohn of the Nazi Art Protection Department to search for this lost work. Cohn traveled to Ghent to interview Arsène Godertier's family, as well as Georges Devos. Says historian Charney, quote, This may sound very silly, but in fact, the Nazis, and Hitler in particular, were absolutely convinced that the occult and the supernatural was real. And they believed the Ghent altarpiece was some sort of mystical treasure map that could show them the location of religious relics, including the Arma Christi. That's the crown of thorns, the spear of destiny, and other instruments in the biblical story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Cohn went to work, and his investigation concluded that the panel had originally been hidden on site. But he also reported it was moved, and before his arrival, and intentionally to keep it out of his hands. In Cohn's 176-page file on his search for the panel, it was clear he had been convinced the panel was hidden at the cathedral. Goebbels intended the painting as a gift to Hitler, but Cohn failed to find it. While Cohn may have been looking for one panel, German occupiers of Belgium stole the entire altarpiece. The Belgian government had dispatched the altarpiece to the Vatican for its safety, but Italy's declaration of war led to it being unexpectedly diverted to Pau in the French Pyrenees. It was there in 1942 where it was seized by German troops, who first stored it in a castle in Bavaria and then in the Altossi salt mines. The salt mine was one of Hitler's largest repositories for plundered art, and in it were stored roughly 6,500 paintings, as well as books, statues, furniture, and jewels taken from museums and private collections throughout Europe. These treasures were intended for a planned Führer Museum. Hitler had the idea of turning the city of his youth, Linz, into a Kulturhauptstadt, or cultural capital. He wanted the Ghent altarpiece to be part of his super museum containing the world's greatest works of art. At the end of the war, Hitler ordered the salt mine to be blown up. That is a terrifying thing if you recognize how much art was in there. But not all was lost here. The explosives were not yet rigged. Works were recovered by Allied troops in 1945, and that included the recovery of the Ghent altarpiece. And there is our one reference to the monuments men. The Ghent altarpiece was returned to Belgium on August 21, 1945, on a chartered cargo aircraft. And while we wish, we really wish we could say otherwise, it was anything but safe travels for this invaluable work of art. During the flight, a heavy storm broke out, and while the crew feared the aircraft may not make it to Brussels intact, the pilot did manage to land at a small military airfield. 
And after a short stay at the Royal Museum in Brussels, the altarpiece was finally returned to St. Bartholomew's Cathedral in November of 1945. Since its return to St. Bavo's, the missing panel has since been replaced with a reproduction. Painted by Belgian art restorer and sometimes art forger Jeff van der Vecken, and installed with the piece in 1945. Some detectives were, and maybe still are, suspicious of van der Vecken's contribution. While it looks on the surface like a good deed, some wondered if it was a brilliant way to pull off a theft. And speculation abounds. There is, though, one thing about van der Vecken's copy that everyone agrees really is extraordinarily odd. On the back of the replica, written in Flemish, is this cryptic poem, and we quote, I did it for love and for duty and to avenge myself. I borrowed from the dark side. Today, the piece is where it was intended to be, in the St. Bavo Cathedral in Ghent. Although, as an aside, it doesn't hang in its original position. And because of the altarpiece's multiple dismantlings over time, some experts now question the arrangement of the panels and whether they are correctly sequenced in its current form. And that question remains unanswered. The piece is now exhibited in a 20-foot-tall, climate-controlled case with a 1,000-square-foot interior, and it's all protected by bulletproof glass. And for those who do want to get up close and personal with the piece, the cathedral has introduced an augmented reality experience to guide visitors throughout the space virtually. Oh, that sounds so cool. Uh, and as for that still-missing Just Judges panel... Jan Jambon, current prime minister of the government of Flanders, said in a statement in 2021, quote, Jan van Eyck was a genius who has been astonishing the world for more than five centuries with his innovative techniques. Both the magnificent restoration and the circumstances in which the Ghent altarpiece can now be admired are astonishing. The splendor of colors, the details, the lighting, everything is perfect. That makes us proud. So even without the just judges, it's quite something. Even the photos of it, I have not seen it in person. The photos of it are unbelievable, and it is huge. Let's go to Belgium. Exactly. It makes everyone proud, so let's toast to it. <laughs> Indeed. I am ready with some heist hooch. The thing that I kept fixating on in this episode, at least in my tiny mind as I thought about how to do a cocktail was that whole concept of moved, not stolen. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I'm I like that you picked that out because it's a really interesting turn of phrase that that man kept using. Right, and that made me think about other existing cocktails and how you can riff on them. Mm -hmm. You're not stealing them, but you're trying something new out of them. Simultaneously, I have been doing this thing where to just get better at making cocktails on the fly, like when friends come over, like, I kind of am focusing on one at a time to learn how to really do it well or to figure out the way I like to do it. One of the ones that I have been drinking a little, because I also, that's the good part, right? You can go to places and order their version and get a sense of how other people do it. And one of the ones that I have been working on trying to get better at and learn how I want to do it is the Paloma, which has nothing to do with Belgium. It's no. mostly associated with Mexico, right. but it is a grapefruit and tequila drink. And I will say I struggle with it, too. But I thought maybe this would offer an opportunity to borrow from the Paloma. I'm moving it around. I'm not stealing. I'm moving it, making it something else. <laughs> Who do you think you are, Napoleon? <laughs> and there's no tequila in it. So I hope I didn't get anybody's hopes up in the tequila village. But I'm going to make Maria real happy because there's a spirit she loves in here. I'm calling this just moved, not stolen. First of all, we have to do some combining here because... One of the things in a Paloma is grapefruit juice. I find that I like a sparkling grapefruit or a soda, a grapefruit soda. So we're not putting it in the shaker with the other ingredients because you don't want to put your bubbles in a shaker and make a disaster happen that is hard to mop up. You're going to put a half ounce of lemon, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, get ready to cheer Maria because then two ounces of bourbon. Hell yeah. Okay, paying attention. Here's, listen. 
I have. <laughs> woo! This one is a winner, and I'll tell you why in a moment. So you're going to shake that together. I went ahead and strained that into a second glass. Then I added the grapefruit, the sparkling grapefruit juice, which has a little bit of sugar in it already. That's why there's. it's just a sweeter version of everything. Stir that together, and then I strained it once again into a Collins glass and topped it with club soda. That's like an ounce and a half of sparkling grapefruit juice is what goes in there. So there, you don't have a lot of space for club soda because you do want a lot of ice. It's like literally just a little more smoothness, dilutes it just a little. I would say it's only like an ounce. And then I stuck a straw in it and I tried it. It went, holy God, that's delicious. <laughs> and then I had my husband, who is not a drinker, try right. it. And he was like, I want to drink this all the time. That's Ooh. how much you can't taste the bourbon. But you can. Here's what happens. You're not getting that harsh flavor that sometimes a bourbon can have. You're not getting any of the heavy tones. But somehow, when juxtaposed with that sparkling grapefruit, you do get the things like the caramel note of a bourbon. And you do get like that sort of more rounded out, smoky flavor of it comes through without any of the harshness that you can sometimes have if you're not necessarily into drinking a straight brown spirit. Because they can be overwhelming for people. This kind of brings out all of their most beautiful qualities while softening up the harshest parts. And it is unbelievably delicious. I'm going to make this all the time. <laughs> like I said, the move to not stolen is going into my life on a regular basis. Which is fantastic. Like, I've actually never, I was never sure you say that about a bourbon based. Oh, it's trouble, but I'm going to make a lot of them. So, again, here it is, top to bottom a half ounce of lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup two ounces of bourbon, shaken, strained into a second receptacle, add an ounce and a half of sparkling grapefruit juice and stir that up. If you don't have sparkling grapefruit juice or a, a grapefruit soda, don't sweat it. Just use grapefruit juice. You're fine. Give that a stir, pour it into your Collins glass and top it with, you're only going to need like an ounce of club soda. Delicious. Oh, hardly Delicious. Any, yeah. This is an easy one to do as a mocktail because all you got to do is a nice heavy tea in there in lieu of the bourbon. And I would actually, if you are really feeling it, I would make a black tea and then I would spice it a little bit. You could even grate a little bit if you have vanilla into it. Just a skosh, not very much. Even a nutmeg or something in there. Again, not very much. You don't want to make it grainy. But you can do a one-to-one sub out on that and it is delicious. I took a really lazy shortcut. I made my black tea and then I just did a tap of don't laugh at me I'm very basic and it was on hand pumpkin sp pie spice it's the season it has all of those yummy flavors and that made it great like I would also use that as a seasonal something I would serve to guests when they come over that like if we don't want to drink or if there's somebody that doesn't want to have a cocktail but wants to be in on the fun also freaking delicious <laughs> moved not stolen I didn't steal from the Paloma. I just moved stuff around a little bit. I just bit. moved. Added some other things. things. It's fine. <laughs> I hope if you make this one, you love it as much as I do. It's criminal how much I love it. I'm so proud of you with bourbon drink. I'm so delighted. It always feels like an accident when anything comes together that beautifully. <laughs> I know I'm trying to do my balancing act, try to figure out where to throttle back on ingredients and up some of them to make it all balance out. But it's still some guesswork. And this one just mm -hmm. was like... I don't know. The just judges were helping from wherever they are hiding, I think. Delicious. On the rooftop of St. Bobo's Cathedral. <laughs> if you are helped by the just judges in your life, and I hope you are, um, I hope that's grand for you. I also hope that you have enjoyed spending this time with us and that you will continue to do so. Come back next week. We're going to have more, more art heists and more delicious beverages. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 